Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, thanks folks for joining another edition of the Foundation Podcast. As you know, the feature of this show every week always is our guest. And you've grown accustomed over the last several months to listening to people who are working in public policy, maybe as their full-time job. You've grown accustomed to hearing from some of our experts here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, experts from other organizations, because after all, you're a national audience. We understand that Texas is the most important place, but we know that sometimes we have to talk about other places. You also know that there are two other aspects of this podcast that are really important and animate why we do what we do. One of them is trying to model civil discourse, not just with people with whom we see eye to eye on everything, but with people who might have differences of opinion with us on some some certain policies. The second thing that we try to do is get to certain American stories, why they do what they do. And that is my way of saying thank you to our guest this week, Chris Perry, recent candidate for Congress, an attorney here in Austin, Texas, who is doing the Lord's work in helping to build communities in ways that all of us, regardless of how we identify ourselves ideologically, conservative, progressive, liberal, libertarian, would really appreciate. And I think for a lot of our listeners that you will find Chris's story to be inspiring. I think that you will find it to be a, 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 an example, really, for all of us to be engaged in ways that American civil society requires. And so, Chris Perry, you're really the best at telling your own story. But first of all, a very warm foundation welcome to you this week. Thank you very much, Kevin. Very happy to be on here, and I really appreciate you st- extending the invitation for me to come on and be able to talk to y'all today. You, you bet. You've been a very busy man, and, and we'll have you talk about your race for, for Congress here in a little while. A lot of our listeners to the podcast are very interested in kind of the nonpartisan side of public policy. Some, of course, are very involved with the partisan side of politics, and, and we'll have you tell your story about why you got motivated to make that run. But before doing so, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that you are a graduate of Southwestern University, one of the great liberal arts schools in all of America, in my town of Georgetown, Texas, so very, very biased in saying that. And you and I are fellow UT alums. You went to the UT School of Law. And as, as someone who's probably left of center, and I, as someone who's definitely right of center, went to the history department. So we, we both had some challenging environments, I think, given, given our worldview. <laughs> and I say that with a smile, because I know having spoken to you last week, and visiting with you a little bit today, that this is going to be the kind of conversation that our founders wanted Americans to have in perpetuity. And and really, the greatest model for that would be the two candidates in the election of 1800 for the presidency, President John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And they had what remains, even after the 2016 election, the most vitriolic campaign in the history of presidential elections and they became lifelong friends. The last letter that each man wrote to the other was to Adams or to Jefferson. And so it's in that spirit that we conduct ourselves here on the foundation. I know knowing about you prior to having met you that you do as well. So why don't you start by telling us about your story, what you do for a living, and why you are so doggone excited about the work that you do. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, I am a criminal defense attorney here in Austin. I also have a um, passion for economics. I have a master's in economics, and I'll kind of get into that when the jump to the politics scene. That's how I kind of went from criminal just just criminal justice to also thinking, hey, maybe a run for Congress would work too. Um, but basically, I've been a criminal defense attorney since uh, I graduated in um, 05 from the law school. I immediately knew that was my calling. That was what I loved uh, to do at the school. It was hard to find people that were like-minded in terms of understanding that it's not about defending or, or reconciling with the fact that you can defend guilty people. It's about defending people's constitutional right to the dignity of a vigorous defense. Because if you don't give people a vigorous defense, you're going to lock people away that are potentially innocent. And we do that way too much here in Texas and the United States. And um, so one of my passions, not only trial work, I also do a lot of appellate work, which means I do appeals. I try to um, overturn convictions. And also, when the appellate process uh, finishes, I also do something called writs, where we try to attack um, the conviction from some other basis, whether it be new evidence, DNA evidence coming up, or ineffective assistance of counsel, something like that. And um, so that's my work during the day, and I also have um, really wanted to help our community here in Austin, where I see a huge, um, just as we have a huge economic divide in terms of income inequality in this country, we also have a huge divide in terms of criminal justice outcomes between the people who can afford to have a great attorney versus those who can't. And sometimes there's great attorneys that are on the court appointed list, but sometimes you get stuck with somebody that's not so great. So um, part of my passion has been to try to, through my pro bono work, my volunteer work here in the community, try to equalize that a little. So uh, about four years ago, with the help of uh, Paul Quincy, who ran for county court at law judge um, this past session, and Meg Clifford, who's uh, one of the professors over at UT, uh, we were founding partners of the UT Law Expunction Project, which helps people clear wrongful arrests from their backgrounds so they can get jobs and housing. And not every conviction, or no, I'm sorry, not every arrest is eligible for an expunction, but even if you get it dismissed, um, somebody searches your criminal history and they see that arrest on, their, on your record and you're not going to get a job, maybe not get housing because of that. So we really try to give, get those expunctions for people uh, regardless of their ability to pay. Um, we don't want that divide being just the people that can pay can expunge their records and the people that um, can't pay are screwed because then they're not able to get jobs, they're not able to fulfill their potential. Sure. So for our, our listeners who may not be as conversant as, as you are and I up to a point about some of the criminal justice reform going on, what are the kinds of arrests that would be eligible for expunction? Right. Well, basically, any time you're arrested, you're innocent until proven guilty. So sure. if you get your charge dismissed, it's eligible for expunction. The problem is expunctions are a little bit legally technical, so right. you kind of have to have a lawyer. Probably the minimum that somebody charges here in town is $1,000 to get one, plus filing fees. So you've got to have about $1,500 to get one. So pretty much everything under the sun, you can expunge. Um, murders, you might not be able to expunge because the statute of limitations never expires. But if the prosecutor says, hey, there was no basis for this charge, um, you can um, get, a, get a recommendation and expunge it. So there really is no limit as long as there was no conviction um, arising out of that arrest. But we're convicted in the court of public opinion all yeah, the time. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly so what So you thinking. Google somebody, you see their mugshot, it doesn't matter if that person um, was dismissed and it says that or somebody just sees that person was arrested and it sticks in their mind that they must have done it. Um, if they were arrested. Yeah, so. that's right. And, and I think particularly in, in the age of technology, to say the least, that that 
for an arrest that was dismissed and, and otherwise eligible for expunction is the most difficult thing when you're applying for a job, or for that matter, just being an active member of a community, right? Mm-hmm. You have to fill out those dreaded extra pages. Uh, and then I think once an employer sees that you have those extra pages you're filling out explaining an arrest, you probably go into the pile of, we don't want you. Yeah, sure. So the clinic has been open four years. Is that what yes, you said? Yes. How many people have y'all helped? We have helped. It started out maybe about 50 a semester, and now it's grown to, I think we did over 150 last semester. So it's really tripled in size and um, not just, so hundreds of people, I think we're closing in on uh, uh, close to 1,000 people we've helped get expunctions. And not just that I'm proud of, but also the law students that have participated. So we really trained law students how to do this public interest work. And um, when I was there just 12, 15 years ago, there wasn't the same amount of um, volume of students participating in these types of pro bono clinics. Um, and I think I saw something from Dean Wellborn that it was up to over 90% participate in some type of pro bono work while they're in the school, and it really instills public service uh, into them. So um, I see it as a, a big benefit for the clients of the clinic, but also I love teaching the students and seeing how they, um, one student told me, like, you taught me how to give dignity to people. Right. Like they come in with a, 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 a DPS criminal background this thick. And you, Chris, taught me how to like bring dignity to those people by listening to their story, going through every arrest of them one by one to figure out um, whether it's expungible. Because it's embarrassing sometimes for these clients to bear their soul to somebody. Sure. You know, as you're explaining that with, with great passion and, and genuine uh, passion, authenticity, I'm thinking about how this larger effort of criminal justice reform, especially in the last 10 years in the United States, is one that's truly nonpartisan. I mean, it sometimes gets characterized in some partisan ways, but less and less. And I think the reason for that is, at least the top reason for that is, something that you mentioned, and that is this work is animated by our shared belief, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum, of the dignity of the human person. And while we get into other policy areas, maybe education, maybe taxation policy, there are going to be differences. Ultimately, we're both trying to get back to what is the best way that as a civil society, either through policy or not through policy, we can can really support the dignity of the human person. That, I think, is one of the reasons that criminal justice reform effort has been so popular among the American left and the American right together. You come at your view of the work that you do and, and the world from a particular perspective that might be different from that of some of our listeners. And so I think it may be helpful for them to hear your story about what has motivated that. Was that a particular case that you had? Was it a particular course that you studied? This is a long-winded way of asking about your story into the work that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, probably what motivates most criminal defense attorneys, I think, to get into the profession is to help um, you, you hear about wrongfully convicted people. Right. Um, so that starts it. And then I think once you start meeting people and doing the professional work, you realize a lot of times, or even most of the times, people have done something to get arrested. It, 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 you can't just go at it being like, I'm only going to defend people that are innocent. Everybody de- deserves um, the dignity of, the, of, of a defense. Sure. So, um, what I, but, but, but I did start it out from more of a level of, wanting to look at convictions and how to overturn them. That, that was fascinating to me because um, just through my career, Michael Morton has been freed from Georgetown sure. um, Yeah, after 25 years in prison. And I want to see how can I help people that either were wrongfully convicted or 
gotten a worse bargain or deal than they thought they were getting into. How, how can we help do that? So that's where I got into appeals. I got into doing these writs. Um, it's short for writ of habeas corpus. It's basically a way, I, I referenced it earlier, it's a way of trying to help people um, who maybe had a bad lawyer or got bad mm-hmm. advice. Um, and what I found was at every end of the justice system, they wanted finality over accuracy. You have all of your rights until that jury gets a conviction or until you do a guilty plea to a judge. From there, the system just sets up block after block after block to prevent you from presenting any evidence to support the fact that you might actually be innocent or that your attorney did a bad job. Try filing a writ of ineffective assistance of counsel. You upset that trial attorney. Um, And then they try to put up blocks against you so that you can't get justice for your client. So seeing that happen, and, and people have told me all the time, you're crazy for doing writ work. You set yourself up for heartbreak, and it's true. I talked to my wife the other day, and I, was get, I, I had gotten another bad outcome on a writ that I thought I should have won, and I was going over the three most heartbreaking cases of my career, and they were all writ denials oh, where the judge never even gave us the procedural due process of an evidentiary hearing. And there's a fascinating study that just came out from Jim Marcus right up the road at the Capital Punishment Clinic where he studied all of the Harris County death penalty cases over like the last 10 years. And judges did not grant hearings in I think over 95% of the cases and they just rubber stamped the state's proposed findings in each one of those. Often cases that had thousands of pages of evidence, they would be submitted to the judge and they'd be signing findings two hours later. Mm -hmm. Clearly not. Humanly impossible, right? Yeah, and then it goes up to what we call the Court of Criminal Appeals, the High Court for uh, Criminal Appeals in Texas. And I saw another statistics that's just jarring. It's out of 15,000 cases that were presented to them on writs, they granted three in the last three years. And I know there's more wrongful convictions than that because people are fallible. And 12 jurors can get it wrong. I mean, everybody's seen the Michael Morton. We've seen um, anybody that watches Netflix. uh, What's it called? The um, Making a Murderer, The Staircase. You see these examples of it, and you see how how much our justice system makes institutions institutionalizes ways to prevent you from challenging those convictions. So um, I had to experience it myself. I had to um, passionately file these writs, um, do everything I can to win, and then have judges deny it for me to figure out, hey, this is a deeper problem, and we're only going to solve this problem if we start helping people out in the community that can't afford lawyers and start not giving up on writs, but but increasing the number we file, getting people behind us. Um, That's kind of the rationale behind the expunction clinic, um, but it's also the rationale behind, um, I was telling you before we started the podcast, my new idea um, that's kind of in a fledgling phase is is taking the, taking the people that can't get expunctions because say their lawyer gave them bad advice. Their lawyer said, you're going to be able to expunge this um, assault case from your record if you plead a deferred adjudication. And then two years later, they find out they can't do it. And they're crying to me at the clinic saying that America must hate me. America doesn't care because they, they, they want me to have this conviction on my record so I can't um, afford housing, I can't feed my kids. So what I want to do is help those people and use the UT students to um, help that by having a clinic that allows people that can't afford writ lawyers, because a writ is very expensive. It takes um, hundreds of hours to prosecute a, a writ sure. case. Um, and I want to be able to uplift those people and allow them to actually reach their potential and um, get the education that they want to get to um, get the jobs they want and be able to fulfill their potential. I tell you, that work is so important. As I, we, we have a, a real 
active internship program here at the Policy Foundation. And sometimes the interns will ask me, and they're coming from you know, mostly right of center perspectives, but we, we welcome anyone as long as they're willing to do some hard work, right? But they'll, they'll ask me, well, what is it that's the most important thing about the public policy work? Is it a vote in the legislature? Is it a, a, a win from our litigation center? And I always tell them, no, it's, it's neither of those things. It's that one person was aided by doing the right thing in policy. And as I'm sitting here listening to you explain about what you have the privilege to do each day, I'm sure that you have seen a lot of people helped by that. And I think that for Americans, especially those who are listening to the, the, this podcast, who get a little soured by the American public square, the, the political sphere, that remembering that is really important. But that leads me to the next question. And that is that you have identified something that I think is an egregious problem in modern America. And I'd say that more as a historian than as a conservative. And that is that the process that a bureaucracy has determined is important is more important than the person. Now, you know where I'm going next, and not in a gotcha question. We don't, we don't do that on the podcast. I'm genuinely interested in what you think about this. Historically, the American bureaucracy, what we might sometimes pejoratively call the deep state or the administrative state, but I, I'm not going to use that phrasing on purpose out of respect to you, has grown probably exponentially, literally, over a century. I think that same problem of the process that certain bureaucracies want being more important than the person can be seen all across the land. And I'm curious from your perspective as an attorney, as a smart guy who studied economics in the, in the political process, if that's also common ground that you and I have. Well, well bureaucracy is a huge issue in mm -hmm. criminal justice because it becomes uh, the prosecutor mm -hmm. really determines the charges. The people don't determine right. what somebody's charged with. What do they say? You can indict a ham sandwich? <laughs> so a prosecutor is really dictating who gets indicted and what the charge is. So let's just say that um, the prosecutor thinks that this person really, could really only get them on manslaughter. Mm -hmm. Well, how is that prosecutor going to make sure they get a manslaughter conviction? They're going to indict them for murder. And uh, there's, there's really no way to punish that prosecutor, to, to, to hold that person to the fire. So yes, there is a mess. I think there is a mess of bureaucracy mm -hmm. in the criminal justice system where it's basically police is done once they determine probable cause. They pass those papers up. The prosecutors, they're supposed to do justice, but the way the system works is they take a charge and they know they're supposed to prosecute it. And once it gets down to them, a lot of um, thought of, and, and reasonableness of whether we should proceed on the search goes away, and it's more about um, how am I going to get some type of conviction. Sure. So I so I definitely see that um, in terms of the bureaucracy, the justice system level. I also see on a governmental level, a bigger mm -hmm. level. Um, I think that that type of bureaucracy has created barriers to entry, um, barriers to getting to talk to your legislator, sure. um, talk to your leader, and I think that that has a lot. Um, to, and, and it's and it's Republican and Democrat um, in terms of. Corruption, like right. it, it leads to, we're only going to give access to the people who give us campaign donations. Say, I think mean, we saw that in the Bob Menendez case recently, mm -hmm. uh, the McDonald case in the Supreme Court, and it's impossible to prosecute this corruption. Yeah. And now, so so they a politician will openly say, um, I only make meetings for people that give me money, and I think that that really uh, impedes democracy and makes it so that people don't have faith in government, and often will say, Why do I even need to vote? Yeah. If who I'm going to vote for doesn't care about me, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, yeah. they're just going to do what their campaign donors say, and it's so expensive to get elected. I mean, the whole system just just feeds into um, 
the bureaucracy and, yeah. and people making money off it, the lobbyists. Um, it's a, it, it gets to be a, um, a really unwieldy system. Well, and, it is. I, I agree with that. And, and we know just from human nature, Adams and Jefferson talked about this, that power is intoxicating. And for a whole bunch of reasons, I would imagine most of them that we, we agree on, we've reached a point in American history when access to the people who represent us has become more difficult. It's very obvious at the federal level with U.S. senators and congressmen. It's even obvious here in Texas where, as I tell people outside Texas, everyone's friendly. But to, to get to legislators, which is not even so much a, a derogatory comment about the members of the legislature as much as it is about the system, right? And, but it's even true at the local level. I, th I find it sometimes hard to get access to city councilmen or mayors or county commissioners because the same system is in place there. So, and it probably goes beyond policy. I mean, think about de Tocqueville here, I'm sure you've read, saying it's, if, if you ever have a problem with that kind of thing, it's not the system as much as it is the virtue of the citizenry. And I immediately, as a lifelong educator, think about schools. So is there something in education and how we conduct our lives just as citizens each day going through our, our, our work lives that you would recommend we do. Uh, one of the things we try to do on the podcast is give our listeners a sense of practical things they can do. Is there a fix to education? Is there a fix to how we talk to one another that you have thought about and want to advocate for? Um, I mean, I wish there, it seems like the technological pro pro progress that we made so far has actually done the opposite of create Agreed. fixes. Um, so I, I, I think that I mean I think when things like Facebook or Twitter came out, they were saying this is going to create democracy across the land and everybody's going to be able to communicate. And instead, people re retreat into echo chambers. So I don't know if um, technology. I agree strongly with that. Yeah. yeah so I don't know sides. exactly. Yeah. So and I, and I think <laughs> the only times you make progress, and I think that the more you stick in your echo chambers. The more the um, the the rhetoric becomes uh, more extreme and caustic, um, mm. and so, I mean, I've I think domestic exchange programs are a really good idea. Hmm. Getting people tell me about uh, that. Yeah, I mean, I've read. A, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal about a year ago. I read a great article about let's not just talk about foreign exchange programs, but America is so divided up. I mean, there's so many different parts of America that believe different things. Mm. Um, that what if we had people in high school. Um, ex go from Alabama to Boston and bring some people from Boston down to somewhere in Alabama and have them live there a year. And uh, then, and then you have discord. And then, it, by having to live amongst people, you're not going to have an antagonistic attitude to them all the time. Right. You're going to learn, yeah, why they have their beliefs and and start to see really where our common values are. That most people, regardless of party, believe in decency. They want compassion. They want truth. I mean, yeah. I think that's something that's been missing um, too much lately is the truth is just getting getting bent. Um, and I think that if people were getting able to get outside of these echo chambers, so technology is doing the opposite. It's putting them in the echo chambers. We've got to get them outside of that starting when they're children. I don't think um, we can fix people that have already set in their ways. But what we can do through education is make it so that people are more open-minded and tolerant of other views. And then we can have that civil discourse we need once we agree on our values, then the question is, what size of government do we need in order to execute that? And that can be a very civil conversation, and we're not having that right now when um, it's it's two sides yelling epithets at each other, sure. and, and you have this extreme language, and it, you're gonna, it's hard to get somebody on your side when you say the other side's evil. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's really well said. I hadn't thought or read about the domestic exchange programs, but I really like that idea. 
And your point about technology is something I think about every day. When, when I was president to Wyoming Catholic College before coming to my current role, we didn't allow students to keep their cell phones. So they would show up and for the fall semester, after the summer at home, obviously, and they would check in their phones. And parents, of course, were concerned because this is rural Wyoming where weather can be bad, and they're wondering what happens if there's an emergency. Well, if they were taking a trip on the weekend, of course they could have their cell phone. But the point of all that is to say that when we would have visitors to our campus, invariably, I mean to the person, they would come to my office or the office of another administrator and they would say, we have never been around young people, 18 to 20 something, as engaged, as joyful, as willing to talk with anyone, regardless of whatever difference of opinion they may have. And I, I, I guess intuitively thought that that was a good policy, but as I had dozens of those conversations with people who visited our campus, I realized that's the answer. And we don't have to be Luddites, although those of us who are conservatives have that proclivity sometimes. We, I think we just need to be really balanced in how we use the technology for good. And one of our kind of informal rules here in our workplace is, someone's talking to you, put your screen down, because we really need to have civil conversations, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, politicians and candidates could use that advice. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that, uh, that was my next question. You just took the plunge. Uh, as Teddy Roosevelt said, you, you were the man in the arena running for Congress. Thank you for doing that. I really do mean that. And as I remember, you came really close to being one of the major parties' nominees for Congress. And I just would love our listeners to hear what motivated you to run, what your experiences were, positive and challenging, and what you learned from the experience. Because we try to encourage that kind of behavior on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was basically, and, and uh, no offense to anybody that um, liked Donald Trump, it's when he was elected. No one on the, who listens to the show is allowed to take offense to anything. <laughs> okay, so uh, I will, I'll just be honest. So here's yes, what happens, like, like I, I, was, I was upset after the election, I was surprised. And, when, when, and I wanted to give him a chance, and I thought that maybe some of the things he had promised during the campaign he wouldn't necessarily come out on, like maybe travel ban, maybe wall, things like that. But to me, the real tipping point was Jeff Sessions becoming the Attorney General. I just thought he was a really bad choice. I thought uh, with a history of um, some racist policies, I don't want my top-level Attorney General to come from those types of backgrounds. Um, when, he, when he said, though, and he issued an um, edict to his U.S. attorneys on one of his first days of office, that they had to stop the policy of going under mandatory minimums on federal sentencing for drug offenses. Um, it, it just stuck me as like, wow, we're going to go backwards into in a mass incarceration era where we're making progress in trying to um, divert drug offenders out of the justice, out of the prison system and make it maybe either more of a public health issue or find rehabilitation aims. We're just going to have taxpayer dollars go to these five or ten year mandatory minimum sentences when you don't even have an infrastructure in place in that prison to create a good reentry program. And that made me think, like, who's my representative right now? Are they doing anything about it? And um, they weren't. They were pretty much rubber stamping that type of um, attitude. I was calling my legislative offices and asking mm -hmm. what they thought about Jeff Sessions. And it was like, well, we support the Jeff Sessions um, agenda. And so 
I said, you know what, I come from a background in criminal justice. I have a background in economics. I haven't gotten to use my economics in my job. I've screamed at the TV enough when people say <laughs> erroneous things like demand follows supply or whatever, something like that. I, I was like, you know what, I could combine my economics understanding, my love of policy, and go with my and, and this criminal justice background has given me the experience just fighting for people, fighting for individuals who maybe nobody else has ever wanted to fight for. And I saw the problem of our leaders weren't caring, like we, we talked about earlier, they weren't caring about what their voters say, only about what their donors say. And I was like, I want to, I'm somebody that has the experience fighting for people. I understand economics and I want to um, carry forward um, and give this a try, try a grassroots campaign and see how it goes. And it was, uh, it started off, um, I guess a little slow, but then it really picked up momentum. Mm -hmm. We raised Obviously. over two hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars without having any major um, D triple C or any type, any of that type of support, um, and we won the primary in March. Uh, it was over forty thousand people in a um, district, and only had fifteen thousand people vote in the previous midterm election. So we're really excited about um, those uh, those uh, happenings. Mm -hmm. um, brought our chief strategist here, John, who was uh, very instrumental in the campaign. Had people working thousands of hours because they believed in our, a, a movement that was about, it wasn't about any individual policy. I would go mm -hmm. knocking on doors and I would talk to people. I would say, you know what, our campaign's not just about healthcare. It's not just about education. Yeah. It's not just about immigration. It's not just about criminal justice reform. It's about what's tying all these issues together. Good. And what's tying all these issues together is that corporate and special interests have really hijacked our democracy. We need campaign finance reform. We need to strengthen our anti-corruption laws. Uh, we need to end this partisan gerrymandering. And we need to identify where our, why our economic um, well-being has gotten to the point where um, all the profits of corporations go to basically the CEOs and the shareholders, and the workers aren't sharing in, in, it, in it at all. And we have vast income inequality um, because of the monopolization. We don't have free markets if we don't exercise antitrust laws. And so I was trying to tie government reform together in a narrative that explained mm -hmm. why you might not have some of these progressive policies passing. It's because those progressive policies aren't often in the interests of, um, of, of these corporate and special interests. So uh, our campaign was really about government reform. It was about mm -hmm. making increasing transparency, fighting corruption. I'm for, um, for example, legislators having to divest um, any interest in stocks so we don't have a Chris Collins situation again. Mm -hmm. I'm for uh, amending uh, the definition of official act to encompass the pay-to-play -pay schemes that Bob Menendez um, engaged in. Um, they're simple fixes that mm -hmm. nobody wants to talk about because these legislators are up there making way too much money um, and, and, um, and having so much power without caring about what's actually good for their constituents. And that message really caught on. We were endorsed by basically every organization that endorsed a candidate mm -hmm. um, endorsed us. And um, But probably the, the best stories I have are just people were just really excited and, and like, wow, like y y you're, you're a candidate that actually cares about what I care about. Um, you're identifying. Uh, a lot of people would say, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican. But what you're saying... Um, resonates with me. Yeah. Well, you and had so. this cohesive narrative, which too few candidates on either side really ever do. I mean, it's and and part of it is the technology, actually, the the, the ability, especially over the last decade, to micro-target specific groups of voters who who really care deeply about a single issue on both sides. And while I, I mean, the 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 campaign volunteer in me understands that. I know your strategist understands that world. On the on much bigger picture, it's nice to hear a very recent candidate for office 
talk about a cohesive narrative that really is about a vision and a worldview. This is how most American candidates on both sides of the political spectrum ran for office and talked about it for a very long time. And so I remain optimistic that we can get back to that. What about you? I, I'm optimistic too. I think we're, I think that there's going to need to be. Um, I think in the Democratic Party, you're going to see a little more focus on like changing maybe the composition of it first. Um, we, need, we need more people of color. We need more women. And I think that that's a. Um, and I, it's a it's a backlash I support uh, just against like the current uh, composition of our government. And I think that if our government's going to represent all people, it does need to more solidly represent the demographics of our country. But I think once we get there, mm. I want our campaigns to be more than about um, the color of somebody's skin or their gender. Sure. I want them to be about the policy narrative we're, we're going at and, and, and our visions sure. for our country and where we want it to be and, and how we want to uplift um, the working families and make it so that everybody can reach their potential and nobody needs government handouts because everybody has a great job. Uh, wouldn't that be a, wouldn't that be a wonderful world to live in with price stability, full employment, and incredible growth? Um, I, I, the, I, I don't think the, anybody. The devilish details that. is how we get there, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but but if we could agree, but then you'll see people say, well, we don't want full employment because it might. But, but I but I feel like that's somewhat this this corporate narrative. If we have a whole lot of unemployed people, then we can just fire the ones that want more money and hire the ones that are unemployed. Whereas if you get everybody employed, you have a tighter labor market and more labor market competition. It increases. The wages, and I think the free market can work, but the free market's not going to work until we get the monopolization of industry out and make it so that there's more competition. Yeah, actually, again. some of our listeners may be surprised when I say this that I think there's a lot of agreement on that point by a think tank like the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which abhors winners and losers being chosen by anyone other than liberty and free will in the market, provided that there is equal access, right? E equal opportunity into the market. And so we probably would quibble on some of the policies, maybe even just be diametrically opposed. We would do so civilly on how we get there, but just framing the conversation in that way would be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, I mean, it just it's apparent to me, Chris, watching you explain your experience from your congressional race you are not soured from that experience. I mean, you, you look like you're ready to go again. Yeah, I think I think the day <laughs> after day. I think the day after I was ready to go again. But I think what we're gonna do is is take some time. I wanna I wanna go back into my community. I mean, I had to. Uh, you have to take a step back from your job when you're sure. campaigning. You you leave some of your passion, your community passion projects behind. I want to go back, kind of get back into my community projects, start this new project I was telling you about sure. with the with the writs and affording the opportunity to challenge convictions to people that might not be able to afford attorneys. But yeah, I I want to absolutely. I want to get back there. Um, I want to uh, I, I I want to want to run again for something. I'm not quite sure what it would be, but I definitely um, see public service as something that uh, people should be aspiring to because uh, our, our country is an exceptional country. America is exceptional. And um, our, our values and opportunity for all, um, this um, pursuit of prosperity, um, equality, I think that America is such a wonderful country and we need leaders who are upholding those ideals and care about those values and not just about uh, making a buck. Yeah, amen. Chris Perry, you are a great Texan, a great American. It has been a privilege to make your acquaintance and look forward to a longtime friendship. Thank you so much, Kevin. It was you a bet. pleasure being on. Thanks for on. joining us. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.